Well, as Cameron alluded to this morning, you're supposed to be here this morning, but I'm not supposed to be here this morning. <laughs> I'll tell you what happened this week is uh, Tuesday we learned that uh, two members of Roger's family tested positive, and so the entire Poupard family is quarantining. And so we looked at Jason and said, you're up to bat, uh, to which uh, Jason immediately uh, began working on his message of J Judges 12 this week. And I got a call from Jason yesterday afternoon. <laughs> His voice sounded a little gravelly, and he informed me that he was going to go get tested. And I knew what that meant, or possibly meant. And so 8 o'clock last night, Jason calls me and says, I tested positive, which meant that I am positively preaching this morning. <laughs> yeah. You know, uh, it's, it's amazing as I think about it, the NCAA football or NFL, uh, the number of teams, especially in the midst of this pandemic, how they've had to rely on sometimes their second string and even third string quarterbacks. And so in the first service, I said, I guess I'm the third string quarterback to which afterwards somebody informed me that the Alabama quarterback is not only a third-string quarterback, but he is a walk-on. So I stand before you this morning as a walk-on third-string quarterback. And by the way, let me say this. Thank you. Thank you. I just hope the coach doesn't pull me in the middle of the game. Um, and what, what, as I talked with Roger uh, and talked with uh, Jason yesterday, was that I said, no, let's, let's continue with the Judges series. And so um, Roger, uh, through Jason, sent me Roger's transcript, which I went to work on and uh, did, did some editing on it. Uh, not that there was anything heretical in there, you see, that... I was in disagreement with, but uh, yeah, and so, um, but it's, it's really interesting as I say that because one of the things that we're going to learn today is the fact that God is the one who gets the glory. If we don't care who gets the credit, it's God is the one who gets the glory. And so, as we begin today, um, you know, our Christmas season, we took a hiatus from our study through the book of Judges, and we're returning to resuming that study today in Judges chapter 12. And what we're looking at today is the end of the story that actually began in chapter 10, where the Ammonites had been oppressing the nation of Israel for some 18 years. And we saw in chapter 11 where God had raised up this unlikely leader, such as the one that stands before you today, as an outcast by the name of Jephthah. Uh, he was called to lead this ragtag Jewish army against the enemy. And uh, God gave Jephthah and the Jews a, a great victory. 
which you'll recall came at a high personal cost for Jephthah because of a rash vow that he had made that ended up in the sacrifice of his daughter. And so as Judges 12 begins, uh, there should have been a, a period of peace now in the history of, at this point in the history of the nation. Uh, but instead we find that a new battle is brewing because the Jewish tribe of Ephraim shows up and threatens war because of their pride. The fact that their pride has been hurt uh, because they were not a part of the victory that God had given. And this is where we pick up the story in Judges 12 and in verse 1 where we read, Then the men of Ephraim were summoned, and they crossed to Zaphon and said to Jephthah, Why did you cross over to fight against the sons of Ammon without calling us to go with you? We will burn your house down on you. And so here we see that jealousy and anger are companions. As those who are green with envy usually become red with anger. And when it comes to envy, the envy of Ephraim, this isn't the first time that we've seen this. Uh, there was a similar situation that occurred when Gideon defeated the Midianites. Uh, you may recall in Judges chapter 8 and in verse 1, we can read there, Then the men of Ephraim said to him, What is this thing you have done to us? Not calling us when you went to fight against Midian. And they contended with him vigorously. It's almost like same song, first and second verse. But in both places, God had given Israel a miraculous victory. The one that the Ephraimites were not a part of. And as the largest and strongest of these tribes at the time, they were angry that they missed out on the glory and the spoils that would come with a victory. And as I mentioned earlier, those who are green with envy usually are red with anger. And here they come and threaten to kill Jephthah. You know, the Bible, as we can recall, as well as history, is littered with the fire and blood of people who have been envious or jealous. Um, Genesis, we see this right there near the beginning. The first murder where Cain is envious and kills his brother Abel. Uh, we see similarity with Saul seeking to kill David. And as we recall, the brothers of Joseph, who had, had at first planned to kill him, but instead wound up selling him into slavery. 
You know, as I was reading through this, I thought of January 6, 1994, for those of you who can remember, the envy and the anger that played out that day on the part of Olympic figure skater Tanya Harding against her Olympic teammate Nancy Kerrigan. And though the attack on Kerrigan was carried out, in fact, by Harding's ex-husband, Jeff Galuli, Harding nonetheless accepted a plea bargain in which she pleaded guilty to conspiracy to hinder prosecution. And some of us can speak of the wreckage that has been wrought in some of our own lives because of envy and jealousy. And maybe you haven't been moved to uh, injury or murder, but how many reputations have been assassinated by the poison arrows that have been spoken on the lips to spread lies and to take someone down? How many lives, uh, maybe even your own, have been hurt by bitterness or when envy had taken root? And as you think about your own life, and as I think about my life, have you allowed envy and jealousy to steal your joy? Social media is one of those places, unfortunately, that fuels this fire as people look at posts on Facebook and other platforms where people post their vacation photos or the new toys that they've gotten or tell about their seemingly perfect lives. You know, even if what we are seeing there is true, we need to find our contentment in the things that are lasting rather than seeking contentment in the passing things that our society would lead us to believe are important. And so in our passage today, the people of Ephraim have lost sight of what mattered as they were angry, that they had not been a part of the victory. Rather than rejoicing that the land had been set free from the enemy, they had now become angry as they threatened civil war. And Jephthah must have learned of their approach because he's not at his home and is instead at Zaphon, where was, which was near the Jordan, showing that he had probably mobilized his forces and would meet them there. Jephthah initially looks for a peaceful solution, though. Uh, we read in verses 2 and 3, And Jephthah said to them, I and my people were at great strife with the sons of Ammon. When I called you, you did not deliver me from their hand. And when I saw that you would not deliver me, I took my life in my hands and crossed over against the sons of Ammon. And the Lord gave them into my hand. Why then have you come up to me this day to fight against me? 
You know, as we read this, there is incredible restraint here on the part of Jephthah. As you remember the background of chapter 11, where his daughter has just been sacrificed. And as these people are whining about missing out on the glory, Jephthah is missing and mourning his daughter. And all that Jephthah has left in his life is his home, which they are now threatening to destroy both his life and his home. And so rather than coming out swinging, Jephthah instead takes a deep breath and reviews the history of what happened. The enemy were the Ammonites, who had been oppressing the land, as we had said earlier, for some 18 years. Uh, This was plenty of time for the Ephraimites to have gathered together their army and fought them if they had really wanted to. You know, we've all seen, or maybe you are, an armchair quarterback. An armchair quarterback who likes to criticize or to stand on the sidelines and shout instructions to those who are on the field or in the fight. You know, my younger brother in Dallas, he told me about the preseason club soccer team parent meeting that his son would play on every year. And in this preseason parent meeting, what the coach would do is he would give the parents a test, a written test, on the rules of soccer. And as you can well imagine, the parents would fail the test miserably. And at that point, the coach would make the point that, I'm the coach. You let me coach. I understand the game. I know the rules. Your job is to support and encourage the boys in the fight on the field. And, you know, he was communicating to these parents that, you know, if if you have a better way, then you need to lead by example and you need to get on the field and play the game yourself. My brother said none of them accepted that challenge. But the tribe of Ephraim was good at being brave from the sidelines. Uh, After the battles were over, uh, they did that back in chapter 8 with Gideon and again here with Jephthah. And as I read here what Jephthah says, where he says, Why then have you come up to me this day to fight against me? Uh, The Ephraimites saw something that they wanted, and they decided how they were going to get it. And the problem was they forgot who they were trying to take it from because the glory belonged to God and God alone, not Jephthah. God was the one who was the leader 
of the nation. And God was the one who had given them the victory. And so the glory they were trying to grab was God's glory, which we see Jephthah trying to remind them of, where he says, the Lord gave them into my hand. You know, in Philippians chapter 2 and verse 3, Paul says there, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, let each of you regard one another as more important than himself. That quote comes from the kenosis passage. That passage where we see Jesus setting aside his glory, taking on human flesh, not setting aside his deity, but setting aside the glory that comes with being a member of the Godhead. Um, He took on human flesh to pay a penalty that you and I could not pay for ourselves. He took on human flesh to come to die in our stead to pay for our sins. And as you think about all that God has done for you through Jesus Christ, how willing are you then to serve him, to serve him and to not worry about who gets the glory? You know, it's interesting that in NCAA football, if you watch Notre Dame, USC, and Penn State, Unlike other teams, the players do not have their names on the back of the jerseys because these coaches recognize that this is a team sport. We don't care who gets the glory. When Ronald Reagan was president, on his desk there in the Oval Office, he had a plaque throughout his two terms And the plaque had this inscribed on it. There is no limit to what a man can do or where he can go if he does not mind who gets the credit. Jephthah could have demanded the glory and the rewards as the Ephraimites were doing. But instead, Jephthah chose to rightly give glory to to God. And God did not forget Jephthah. And that is why in Hebrews chapter 11, in what we refer to as the Hall of Faith, is included the name of Jephthah. You know, the Greeks tell a story of a man who killed himself through envy. His fellow citizens had raised a statue to the one of their own who had won this great victory. And so strong was the feeling of envy of this hero's rival that at one night he went out and he tried to push the statue off its pedestal to destroy it. And after much effort, he actually succeeded. But as the statue came down, it crushed him as it fell on him. 
And in verse 4, we find something similar as the envy of Ephraim made them keep pushing until they too were crushed. Notice where it says, Then Jephthah gathered all the men of Gilead and fought Ephraim. And the men of Gilead defeated Ephraim because they said, You are fugitives of Ephraim, O Gileadites, in the midst of Ephraim and in the midst of Manasseh. You know, have you ever known someone, hopefully not yourself, who looks for just the right word to push somebody's hot button? Um, and the use of the word here, uh, fugitives of Ephraim, or the word renegade, is pushing their hot button. Because you see that the tribes that were to the west of the Jordan, that some of them defected and crossed and joined the ragtag group that was on the east side of the Jordan. And so he's referring to them as fugitives, as renegades. And it attacked the family background of Jephthah. Uh, we saw this in Judges 11 and verse 1 that he was the illegitimate son of a prostitute and that he had been driven from the family home by his half-brothers. And this statement even attacked the Lord as in Numbers 32 and Joshua 22, they tell us that God had given the people the land east of the Jordan. So they were not rejects, they were not fugitives, they were not renegades, but they were rightful heirs to the land. In verses 5 and 6, we see that this taunt is turned on Ephraim as they end up trying to flee back across the Jordan. It says, and the Gileadites captured the fords of the Jordan opposite Ephraim. And it happened when any of the fugitives of Ephraim said, let me cross over, the men of Gilead would say to him, are you an Ephraimite? An Ephraimite? And if he said no, they would say to him, say now Shibboleth. But he said Sibboleth, for he could not pronounce it correctly. Then they seized him and slew him at the fords of the Jordan. Thus there fell at that time 42,000 of Ephraim. You know, our oldest daughter and her family, they live in uh, midtown Manhattan in New York City. And uh, my wife and I, we love going to visit New York City and we love leaving New, Mar New York City. If it wasn't for them, though. We, um, but on several occasions, we've been to this area. It's on the west side of lower Manhattan, uh, the area known as Soho, uh, S-O-H-O. And Soho is an acronym for this area that's uh, situated south of an east-west running street. And um, it's a quaint area with 
with restaurants and uh, with shops and art galleries situated, uh, situated along these, these, these narrow streets. Um, and so that east-west running street that Soho is situated near is south of that street. And the street is spelled H-O-U-S-T-O-N. Um, it's pronounced Houston. Houston. Yeah, and the locals readily know that I am not from that area when I correctly pronounce the name of that street as we do here in Texas. Houston. Houston. You know, in Matthew 26, 73, we see the same thing that happens to Peter, where it says, and a little later, the bystanders came up and said to Peter, surely you too are one of them, for the way you talk gives you away. You see, Peter was a Galilean, and as he stood in the court of the high priest, uh, it was kind of like putting a New Yorker in the backwoods of East Texas. Um, now, the passage in Matthew is talking about an accent that Peter had, uh, but I want to draw a question from it for us today. The question is this, how clear is it to others that you are a Christian by the way that you talk. In other words, could someone really say to you, as they did to Peter, surely you too are one of them, a follower of Christ, for the way you talk gives you away. As we look at this word that they were to repeat, shibboleth, it means an ear of corn or a stream. Um, it's the pronunciation and not the meaning that made this a good test for those seeking to come back to the west side of the Jordan. In fact, in our day, the word has come to be described as a test in Webster's Dictionary definition of shibboleth, as any kind of test a group gives to outsiders to see if they belong. You know, several years ago, Paul Harvey told the true story of two co-workers who uh, were traveling together uh, by car, uh, making a business trip in central Texas. And along the way, uh, they stopped for lunch in a fast food restaurant that was located in a town about 40 miles northeast of, of Waco. And the name of the town uh, is, is spelled M-E-X-I-A. And after placing their order, these two gentlemen, they sat down and they began discussing and debating the correct pronunciation of the town that they were in. And so when the waitress brought their food to the table... Uh, the men told her they were debating the correct pronunciation of the place where they were. And they asked her to give them the correct pronunciation slowly. 
And with that, the waitress gladly complied and responded, the correct pronunciation of the place where you are is Dairy Queen. (laughs) It was obvious to the waitress that these two gentlemen did not belong in Mahaya. But have you ever given a test to someone to see if they belong? I'm not talking about handing out pen and paper, that kind of a test. But does someone have to dress just the right way or live in the right neighborhood or look a certain way or run in the right circles to be your friend? And as you think about the tests that you may have, think of how you yourself have felt when you failed someone else's test. Someone else that might have had and labeled you as an outsider. You know, I'm sad to say this, but this can happen in our churches. This can happen right here in our church. And sometimes congregations set up a test based on clothes, where if you're not wearing a suit or your best dress, you get the message that you don't belong here. Uh, Some justify it by saying, well, you're supposed to wear your best to worship the Lord. But how do you know that what they're wearing is not, in fact, their best? What may not meet your standard or my standard may be the best clothes that that individual owns. Now it can go the other way as well, where some churches have a culture of dressing down to the point they look down on others who may be nicely dressed or have their hair styled a certain way where they are labeled as being uptight or legalistic. Kathy and I, a number of years ago, were involved in a church It was very dressed down, very casual, and we had a name for people who showed up in a coat and tie. We called them visitors, not to their face. But yeah, as far as the hairstyle, I've never had a problem with that. (laughs) But these tests that we set up or that we impose are likes and our dislikes on others. Is that the test that God uses to see if you and I are acceptable? Am I saying tolerate sin? Am I saying tell everyone whatever they want to do is okay? No, not at all. And that's not what we see Jesus doing in John chapter 8, where you'll recall that Jesus was teaching in the temple And in verses 3 through 11, he says, The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery. And having set her in the center of the court, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in adultery in the very act. Now in the law of Moses commanded us to stone such women. 
What then do you say? You know if they had caught her in the very act, where is the guy who was the accomplice? And this wasn't about righteousness, but this was about the hatred on the part of these Pharisees questioning Jesus. But the passage says they were saying this, testing him, so that they might have grounds for accusing him. But Jesus stooped down and with his finger wrote on the ground. But when they persisted in asking him, he straightened up and said to them, He who is without sin among you, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. And again he stooped down and wrote on the ground. And when they heard it, they began to go out one by one, beginning with the older ones. And he was left alone. And the woman where she was in the center of the court, straightening up, Jesus said to her, Woman, where are they? Did no one condemn you? And she said, No, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, And I do not condemn you either. Go, from now on, sin no more. You know, God doesn't want us to be those who drag sinners in so that they can be condemned. Rather, we are called to love them enough to say, your sins need to stop, all the while remembering that also applies to our own sins. And as Jesus was writing on the ground, we're we're not told what it is that he was writing. But I picture him as writing perhaps a verse of Scripture, the name of a place or some name that reminded them of a hidden sin that they had done. And with the reminders, their stones were dropped and they slipped away, knowing they too had failed their own shibboleth or test of righteousness. You know, every one of us here today is a sinner. And we don't become sinners because we sin. We sin because we are sinners. It doesn't matter if your sins come from the Ten Commandments or if it fits some other category because all of our sins carry the penalty of death, which Jesus Christ paid for on the cross when he died for your sins and my sins, paying a penalty that you and I could not pay for ourselves. And as Christians, we are not perfect. No, far from it. We are just forgiven. And if one day God will welcome us as forgiven Christians, into the gates of heaven, can't we at least welcome another sinner into our church or some other group that we are a part of? The mistake that many Christians make is that we expect the lost 
to change their ways without first giving them a chance to come and to hear the truth that leads to change. It's hard enough for them to be here as they already feel like outsiders. And do we hinder them by our attitudes and by our grim faces where we look like we've been weaned on a pickle? Making it clear that they don't belong or do we look for ways to embrace them without embracing their sin? Jesus said to the adulterous woman, I do not condemn you, but your sin needs to stop. Now, I know there are some people out there who just won't let you love them. Uh, they are people I refer to as extra grace required. And I perhaps am one of those to you, extra grace required. The Ephraimites were these types of people. Jephthah had tried to make peace with them, and they kept on pushing and pushing. And God knows there are others like this, as he told us in Romans 12, verse 18. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. And when Jephthah finally goes to war with the Ephraimites, I think what he did at the river crossing over in letting his anger, crossed over into letting his anger run free. Uh, the Ephraimites were wrong, but the slaughter that followed was extreme. Kind of like the high school basketball team that I heard this week that defeated another school 96-4 to four. It was a little extreme. In verse 6, it says that 42,000 fellow Jews were killed, and that was after many had thrown down their weapons and were trying to retreat across the river. These men were not one of the pagan people that God had commanded to exterminate. No, they were fellow Israelites. And if you look back in Numbers chapter 1 and verse 33, you'll see that at that time of the Exodus, the military strength of Ephraim was 40,500. And so this slaughter that takes place here effectively wipes out the military capability. Uh, we might be tempted to think, well, good, they won't be bothering our brothers anymore. But what it also meant was that they couldn't help in fighting the future enemies of Israel as it would take the next 200 years for Ephraim to regain a sizable fighting force. And we'll see the devastating impact on this in the next chapter of Judges when the Philistines come in and are oppressing the people west of the Jordan where the Ephraimites lived. But this once strong tribe was now crippled and was not a factor in fighting the enemy. You know, I wish we could all go back in time and stand on the banks of the Jordan and right after the slaughter to be able to observe the pile of dead bodies that would have been there because it would burn a vivid picture into our minds of the cost of envy, 
as well as anger that is out of control. After the slaughter of the Ephraimites, it tells us in verse 7, And Jephthah judged Israel six years. And then Jephthah the Gileadite died and was buried in one of the cities of Gilead. In verses 8 through 15, we find the names of three other judges who followed Jephthah. They were known as lesser judges because they ruled over smaller geographic areas. But what little is said about them shows that there was a continuing decline in the land. And among these men, as they sought to live lavish lifestyles as pseudo-kings rather than serving God's people, in Judges 12 and verse 9, Ibzan uses his portion to create a family dynasty, consolidating power through marriage alliances. And after Abdon becomes judge, verse 14, it says that he set up his 40 sons and 30 grandsons on donkeys, which was a sign of kingship. And each of these went against what God said as they adopted the lifestyle of the pagan people around them. And as God's people sought after what the world offered, it led to ruin as they were willing to embrace the Canaanite culture to get it. Does that sound familiar? Envy is a dangerous thing. It can drive us away from God and destroy those around us including ourselves. Listen to what the Proverbs speak in Proverbs 3.31. Do not envy a man of violence, and do not choose any of his ways. Or Proverbs 23.17. Do not let your heart envy sinners, but live in the fear of the Lord always. You know, in closing... It is finding our sufficiency in Christ and not in the things of this world that will bring us fulfillment. God provides everything, everything that you and I need. In Him we have enough. It has nothing to do with what others may have. He gives us what we need So our focus needs to be on Him. I remind you of the words of Paul in 1 Timothy 6.6, but godliness actually is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. Or in Philippians 4 where Paul says, Not that I speak from want, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know how to get along with humble means, and I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. As we have said and seen, envy is an ugly and destructive thing, isn't it? But God offers us freedom from our envy and our anger if we will come to Christ and live for Him. 
Jesus not only gave his life to save us, but his life gives us an example of how we are to serve others. Instead of the quote on President Reagan's desk, this anonymous quote is what we should live by. Live so that others get the credit. God gets the glory and you get the joy. Will you pray with me? Our Father, we thank you the fact that Jesus left his glory in heaven and humbled himself to take on human flesh to come not only to give us an example of how we are to live our lives in the service of you and others, but in an even greater way, Father, to come to pay a penalty on Calvary's cross that we could not pay for ourselves. And we see, we see, we receive that gift by grace through faith in him. To the glory of Christ Jesus the Lord, we pray. Amen.